Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Outspoken with White and Jordan. Hard-edged, hard-nosed, hard to beat. Where are you coming from in this one? Your 100% essential download. Jim White and Simon Jordan. You let this get out of control. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Happy Friday, everybody. Thanks for downloading Outspoken, the podcast that brings you the very best of our daily talk sports show. England legend Stuart Pearce joined myself and Simon Jordan as Marcus Rashford made headlines in the Camp Nou. Talksport won the rights to Jake Paul against Tommy Fury and deadline day arrived for potential Manchester United bidders. Sure, you see the emphasis on Friday morning. We got to Friday and we feel good about it. And how could I ever have doubted you? Simon, I'm sitting chatting to you this morning about the show. And I was looking at my watch thinking, 10 to 10, 10 to 10. And round the corner comes Stuart Pierce with all his research, all his notes, very much ready for the three hours ahead. Good morning. Jim, thank you very much for not doubting me. <laughs> I can't say the same about your mate who was next door. He could not wait for me to be late. He was checking his watch. And I told you, the Jubilee line was uh, cocked up this morning. So I jumped off the train. I ripped the doors open. I jogged up the platform. I moonwalked. I abseiled. I cantered. I trotted. And I arrived on time. Nay early, my friend. Nay early. <laughs> And that's all I can say. You're magnificent. My and reputation arrived ten minutes before I did. And if you, as it a, always does, if you're a London commuter and you witness that, then give us a message on eight ten eighty nine. Stuart, you're most welcome, uh, Mr. Jordan. This podcast that you do with Spencer Oliver, um, I think you're getting a good reaction from it already because you managed to get. Uh, a, a pretty in-depth interview with uh, the boxing board, Border Controls, yep. uh, Robert Smith. Yeah, we did. And I think it was, um, uh, you know, quite a strong interview from Robert in terms of he was very forthright in his views. And the first question that we asked him was, why did you allow the situation with Conor Ben to develop? You're a boxing board of control. Who runs this sport? Is it the promoters, the boxers, the media, and then you at the bottom of the pile? How did you let it drift for three months? Why didn't you deal with it? Apparently, that particular part of the interview being the first question was a part that Eddie Hearn from Matchroom completely missed <laughs> because he's gone off on a rant about how TalkSport isn't particularly fair how I've got a biased agenda against Matchroom and Robert Smith was, wasn't asked any questions now I realise 
that, that the old snake oil salesman misses these sort of things because they're super narrative. <laughs> but I'm afraid, mate, we missed it. Now, listen, on the subject of Stuart Pearce trolling in, getting a bit Jack Dash. I, I, I don't know whether it's because I made the mistake, which I've already apologised for, of calling his penalty miss in 1990 a bottled perspective, <laughs> which I have apologised for privately oh. and on and in public. In public as well. I did it on he? Monday. I made sure I did it, yes, because yeah. I was wrong. He was grovelling over the weekend. He weren't sure how <laughs> I've took it. He thought, has he gone away and taken umbrage? You know what I mean? Will I be found in a pool of uh, I was just, something I, in I, a stairwell? I was, just, I was just wrong. Well, it was a case of mistaken identity because he, he, he you were thinking of Chris Waddle when was, you were yeah. talking about Stuart. Yeah, I was, yeah. But it was a very... It was a very fact that the word bottler and Stuart Pierce's name were in the same sentence. I must admit, sitting in between you, I thought, oh my good God, what's about yeah. to kick off? Because the look in your face, Stuart. It, it was a fair comment from the man across the table. He's entitled to his opinion. I didn't take umbrage at the time. And, and but I the still person who should take umbrage at is him. Yeah. Because he's a stoner. I know who stuck to right now. I'm <laughs> about that. At any time, if you want to get up in this studio, walk around there and throttle him, you you have uh, my full approval. Stuart, a lot to get through this morning. Of course, it is a, a massive weekend. Uh, Sean Dyche has been talking about Dominic Calvert-Lewin, worried about his state of fitness, the fact that he can't call upon him at any time, and looking at every aspect of Dominic's life, including the kind of mattress that he sleeps on. And I'm not joking. We'll get to that later on. But I watched it last night Stuart I don't know if you caught it Barcelona and Manchester United it was an intense affair a hugely entertaining affair uh, 2-2 so this one very much alive I'm just I'm interested to know Stuart Ten Hag how exciting uh, an outfit and a prospect has Ten Hag turned Manchester United into I think he's pushed them to somewhere near uh, title contenders, I would say, at this stage. I, I don't think maybe this season might be too soon for them, but I certainly think with a, a growing process of the next few months, uh, there's no reason why they can't come back to the table next year as, as Premier League contenders. And I, ha I don't think they've been that for a number, number of years. Yeah, yeah. And I think the Manchester United faithful are very much now buying into Ten Hag's methods, right? Oh, 100%. I, I think... Uh, the Ronaldo situation probably was a point in the sand in regard to his evolution as a manager at the club, you know, and the buy-in from the fans. I think once he got the fans on board, having done what he did with Ronaldo, I, I think that was it. It was a cakewalk for him and, and the team are playing from strength to strength. So what does that now mean, Simon, as far as Manchester United uh, is concerned and its allure is concerned? This is a club that was turned down by Erling Haaland. This is a club that was turned down yeah. by Frankie de Jong in recent seasons. Is the allure back? Is the appeal back? Well... Let's look at the two players and who they've turned down Man United for. The team that's sitting top of the La Liga and the team that's sitting top of the Premier League. So with that in mind, you're still in a situation where Man United are regaining their poise, getting themselves together. They are far better as a result now of having a full-time manager. I questioned him at the beginning of the season and I think that the questions are beginning to be answered in terms of the fact that he's got hold of the club. I think he should have dealt with Ronaldo better himself rather than using the court of a public opinion and Ronaldo creating a situation with Piers Morgan where he can exit the football club and he should have had the courage of his convictions to say, I don't want you, because clearly he didn't, despite the fact he said he did. Mm. But it doesn't matter because all roads lead to where they are. You're seeing players re-emerge like Aaron Wan. Bazaka, I know I've got a vested interest because he's a former Palace player, but people wrote him off and he's now becoming part of his team because he's rebuilding players and that's, I think, the hallmark of a good coach that makes players better. So I think all things... And of course, you're seeing Marcus Rashford in this ridiculous vein of form. 
I don't mean ridiculous in terms of uh, you know it's it's something ridiculously that, good. It's he's ridiculously a player you question yeah. before. Well, he's you, a, you had doubts. No, he's a player that I retain you the did, question. You had reservations. No, I retain. No, no, what, I, what I've always pushed back against is the characterisation that he's a world class player and he's on an elite position. I think he's a very good player. You do not get to play for Man United in whichever guise of Man United you've got in front of you without being a good player. He is world class, right? But I argue. No, I don't think he is. Oh, I argue. Simon. I argue with the principle. But top players like Stewart or Graham Sooners will tell you what world class looks like. It's a player that can get into any side. Let's ask him. And I'm not sure that's the mm. case with Marcus Rashford. Rashford right now. Uh, Amongst the best in the world. World class. Right now, yes. But when we talk about world class, for me, world class isn't about making a statement about this week or next week. It's permanent over a, a long period or even looking back on that period. Have they been world class? There's only a handful in my eyes that I look at and think they're really well. And Messi, he's not one. Ronaldo. No, I wouldn't say he's world class. I would say at this moment in time, he's world class. But I've not seen it consistently enough over his whole career. His stats at the moment, games per goals, as we stand at the moment, are the best of his career. And I think that probably shines a light on what's gone before a little bit more and probably highlights that a little bit more that there was more expectation for him to do better in years gone by so is it is this just a purple patch that Rashford is having at the moment Stuart and then he might go a couple of st steps back or he's now here to stay and will knock on the door of, of world class well if I asked a question to you if I turned it on its head and said to you Jim would you put your money on him scoring 25 goals again next year and the year after and the year after and be confident in that? I'm not sure you would be. I'm not sure I could be confident in it. Mm. It's a, it's a well-worded question, Stuart. I'm not sure if I get and that essentially is what you're maintaining as well, Simon. Well, yeah. Right? I mean, I've all, I mean, I didn't I don't particularly like his attitude last year. I didn't like the idea that he can come back from European Championships and then decide that he's going to go on holiday before he had an operation. I think that was everything that told you everything that was wrong with Manchester United and the culture of Manchester United. Um, and I don't think that he particularly pulled up trees, you know, dealing with the adversity of not finding his way and finding his feet during the course of last season. But he's also still a youngish player. Now, moving to where we are now, what he is is in a rich vein of form. He is in a remarkably confident state of mind. Even the goal that he scored the other day that was disallowed was just so sharp. It was out of his feet, bang in the back mm. of the net. And you can see that in a player. You can see that their confidence is brimming. Confidence and moments in time are one thing. A body of work and a consistent level of attainment that puts you above everybody else. That's the usage of the word world-class. And we throw it around like confetti. There are very few world-class players. You can name them on a couple of hands, and at this moment in time, whilst Marcus Rashford's form is ex is extraordinarily good, I think it's a bit silly to start calling him world-class. Just say he's, at this moment in time, on top of his game. I think that's a fair enough assessment. Yeah. I had the temerity to suggest to Stuart Pearce, is he coming in this morning? He's left it a bit late. He was always going to be here, but it's how he got here is key. And I'm looking at a message here, which I will read going into this first break. I was on the bus coming to work this morning and I noticed a gentleman climbing across London Bridge and then scuttling up towards the news building. I didn't recognise him until a child at the front of the bus stood up in complete awe and shouted to everyone on the bus, that's two times League Cup winner and former Nottingham Forest and England fullback Stuart Pearce. The whole bus stood up and applauded. Good morning, Stuart Pearce. Welcome to the Coliseum of Confrontation. Outspoken with White and Jordan. Simon, it's been announced, Jake Paul against Tommy Fury. We know uh, that the fight will take place in Saudi Arabia on Sunday, the 26th of February. But now we know how much you're going to have to cough up for it. Because the pay-per-view price to see Jake Paul, brackets YouTuber, against Tommy Fury, brackets 
related to Tyson, has been announced at 1995. Top Fight Pundit is Nick Pete. Nick joins us live. Nick, what do you think of the price for that? Uh, it's a little bit too expensive for me to watch two novices go at it. I've got to be totally honest. But listen, the Jake, the thing is, Jake Paul has an audience. Tommy Fury has a, an audience outside of boxing. It isn't necessarily boxing fans that the targets in here. It's the fans of their celebrity them. So if they believe they can get twenty pounds off these people who are gullible enough to pay it, then all all all, all <laughs> the welcome to them. You know, it's up to them as a boxing fan. I'm, listen, I'm interested to see it because there's so much noise about it, and it's the first time Jake Paul will ever taste, face anybody that I would say is a boxer, albeit a novice in Tommy. So I'm interested by it, but £20 for a, for me is a little bit steep. At least there's a world title fight on the undercard, I'll give you that. Exactly. Well, let, let's uh, yeah. do a poll, and we'll get to that in a, a second. There, fight, yeah. There's the irony of it, actually, Nick. Let's do a little poll here amongst the three of us. Mr. Stuart Pierce, would you pay 19.95 to watch it? No, I wouldn't. No. Your Highness? I wouldn't pay £1.95 to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, I am, I'm going to second guess. Well, you're probably working on it, mate, right? No? Yeah, I, th I think the fact that uh, I'm not going, I'm certainly not going to Saudi Arabia to, for this. I've got to be totally honest. It's a different kettle of fish with AJ and Usyk and people like that. I, yeah. I ain't traveling to Saudi for a fight of this magnitude. But Alanga Makabu, who, as we know, famously got beat by uh, Tony Bellew at Goodison Park. He is the WBC champion again. He's taking on Badu Jack, who's a, a former top contender, who's a little bit over the hill, but that's a, a decent matchup. My fear is. Why is the World Cruiserweight title chief support to two novices? I'll tell you why. Because the WBC have already said that if Jake Paul wins, they're going to rank him. And the ranking means that the winner of Mukabu versus Badu Jack in the co-main event can have a voluntary defense against a ranked fighter and everybody makes a lot of money. Gee. So, I mean, what an incentive for Jake Paul, isn't it? Would I buy it? Do you know what, Nick? In the build-up to it all next week, and this man beside me and I will be talking about it, you get involved in in the event itself, and yet I probably will end up paying for it. 1995. But Simon, Nick's made a great point. Yeah. WBC Cruiserweight Champion Macabu faces yeah. Badu Jack. Badu Jack. Yeah. And that supports... Paul against Fury. This is where we're at. Yeah, I mean, you've got two kinds of fight fans. You've got the purists and you've got the casuals. And what, what what I'm beginning to understand, spending more time looking at the boxing world, is you've got to address the casual audience because those are the guys that buy the pay-per-views and stack up the, the opportunity for commercial revenues to come into boxing, which is all very welcome. Jake Fury and Tom, uh, Jake, um, Jake Paul and Tommy Fury are a little bit more of a legitimate fight because they both can hand their hands up, hold their hands up properly. They're not other aspects of this particular generation of YouTubers. So there is a little bit of substance behind it. Tragically for me, I, I walked into that arena, as I said to you the other day, when Anthony Yarb was fighting. Yeah. And it was an atmosphere before I went in there. I went to the toilet, came back in, stood into, and, and saw the whole arena standing up for this trash-talking tripe going on between Tommy Fury and Jake Paul. So to, to, as much as I want to resist it, Stuart, there's a massive audience for it. I don't get it. I don't want. I don't understand it. I'm not the slightest bit interested in Jake Paul. But the bottom line is, is there is a phenomenon that goes with these sort of characters that are dragging and tagging people along with it. And if people want to watch it, that audience wants to watch it. And if we can get just get one percent of that audience to be the next generation of boxing purists, okay, I can live with that. But it's not really for me. You see, I'm sitting here, Nick. I'll come back to you in a second, Stuart. I've got to say, I am Mr. Hippocrit because 
I, I mean, I, I hosted a recent boxing night on Talk Sport and KSI, the YouTuber, was top of the bill. Mm. And I've got to say, the thing was a sellout. The atmosphere was brilliant. And the KSI fight itself was none too bad. So you do get caught up in it. Imitation of the real thing or not. Listen, it's popularity. Popularity sells. If if there wasn't enough people there watching or viewing or attending, then it would just fall by the wayside. And so who are we? Who, to, to, who am I? I mean, it doesn't interest me, but, you know, it interests a lot of other people. See, the, the chances are, Nick, uh, without second-guessing what you will do in the night, you're more interested in watching Macabu against Jack than you are in, in watching Paul and Fury. Would I be right? I am, but I'm in the minority, you know, and the it, unfortunately, the, as, as Simon just pointed out then, and we talk about this on Fight Disciples all the time, we're, yeah, we ain't going anywhere, we're hardcore fans, we, we're in this industry. The most important fan is the casual fan, that's across all of sports, especially fight sports, which is why our podcast is designed for football fans that like a little bit of fighting, because there's way more of them. And what Jake Paul and Tommy Fury bring to this fight, this event, is something that Makabu and, and Badu Jack can only dream of. They bring millions and millions of eyeballs, certainly Jake Paul from across the other side of the Atlantic. Tommy Fury here. My wife knows who Tommy Fury is, not because she's necessarily seen him box ever, but because she watched him on, on Celebrity Love Island or whatever it's called. So, And the world has changed. You know, my, my son is only eight, nine years of age. He's got no idea who Ant and Deck are, for instance. But I tell you what, he knows everything about Mr. Beast. He knows everything about this generation of YouTubers that are generating millions and millions of views on YouTube. Yeah, so yeah. the world is changing. It just so happens that because boxing, the way it's set up, the infrastructure's open for, for this kind of thing, the back door was left wide open. Sure. And these YouTubers have flooded in and are just exploiting an opportunity to make a fortune. Please tell me your nine-year-old's heard of White and Jordan. No? Well, he, he asked this morning. He asked this morning because the uh, the shortlist came out for the sports journalism awards audio best audio show, and he knows Dad's podcast is up against White and Jordan's radio is it really? show. So yeah. he's familiar now. Yes, he's familiar. I was going to say congratulations on the nomination, uh, Nick, because it's very well deserved. By the way, wow! Thank you very much, sir. Nick, much he... appreciated. Are we are we all on a table together? Is that the plan? I very well. I'll be well. I'll be with you, Nick. I don't know if Simon will be with us. Hope not. But I mean, that's amazing. So we're now rivals. My goodness me, uh, Nick. I didn't know that. That's good news for all of us. Nick, on a serious note, the fact that we're talking about this is there still a large degree of what you might call boxing snobbery on the go here. That why should this fight top the bill when a real fight featuring people like Macabu and and Jack is on the undercard, if you like. That's a bit of boxing snobbery, isn't it? A little bit, but I think as a lot of people in the industry now are aware of the fact that Jake Paul just brings eyeballs. And as Simon said, that's a good thing. You know, if these fans come to see Jake Paul but stick around for the real stuff and then get invested in the sport, that can only be a benefit. My big fear here, the reason people are in uproar of what the WBC have come out with, if Jake Paul beats Tommy Fury, he will be ranked Jake Paul and Tommy Fury currently, let's use an independent ranking system like Box But, but Nick, should They're he not get a chance? If he beats them, should he not rightfully get a chance? But these guys are both ranked around 500 in the world. Currently, the WBC do a 1 to 40 ranking list. The guy who's ranked number 40 is a former Turkish amateur international. He's undefeated. He's, you know, he's 18 fights into his career. The guy ranked number 39 is a former Cuban national champion who's 10 and 0 in his career with 10 straight knockouts, fought everyone. Jack Massey from Manchester, who went the distance with Joe Parker the other week, he's ranked number 35 in the cruiserweight rankings. So, what you're saying is, Jake 
Paul, after beating Tommy Fury, goes in above one of those guys, it's bonkers. But it's all about <laughs> the WBC wanting 3% of what Jake Paul generates. That's all it is. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Download, stand well back. Listen, Outspoken with White and Jordan from the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Jim White, Simon Jordan, former England fullback Stuart Pearce in studio with us on the day, on the day that we expect bids to come flying in for one of the biggest, if not the biggest football clubs in the world, Manchester United. Manchester United, of course, in the process of receiving bids today, it would seem if the right bid comes in from whatever organisation, from whatever part of the world, and is accepted, then it's goodbye to the controversial American owners, the Glazers. But here's the thing. They expect a Saudi bid. They expect one or more Qatari bids. They expect a bid from a one-time Chelsea bidder, now Manchester United bidder, it would seem, Sir Jim Ratcliffe. But of course, where are we with some of the foreign bids that are going to come in from the Middle East? Human rights group Fair Square has written to UEFA President Alexander Seferin asking him and UEFA to block any Qatar-led takeover of Manchester United amidst concern around future competition integrity. And the co-director of Fair Square is Nick McGeehan. Nick, good afternoon to you and thank you for joining us this lunchtime. Thanks, Jim. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Stuart's with me, so too is Simon, of course, as he is every morning on this show. Uh, Stuart, tell me first and first off, why are you so opposed to any Qatari bid for United? Well, it wouldn't just be a, a Qatari bid. The, the same would extend to a Saudi bid, Jim, if, the, if that news is, is correct. Um, well, there's, there's very clear um, regulations in, in UEFA statutes which say that um, you cannot um, have more than one, uh, you know, one, one, one person or one organisation cannot own more than one club. Um, this would clearly violate that. You know, the idea that, um, you know, the Qataris could convincingly demonstrate that some vehicle of private investors was independent of the state that's preposterous. It's ridiculous. Anyone who understands the political system in Qatar knows that's preposterous. And UEFA could do a very basic analysis and 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 easily show that this is con- contravenes the rules which they impose on their own member associations, right? Uh, which they therefore have to impose on themselves for their own competition. Um, so it should be dismissed out of hand. Uh, it shouldn't even be considered. And if we care about the future of the game, 
if we want it, you know, our clubs, which are parts of the social fabric of, of our societies to be to be run for the benefit of those societies and not in the interests of abusive dictatorships abroad. Um, then we have the power to stop it. So okay. where, are you, where are you coming at this from? I'm somewhat baffled then, Nick. Are you coming at this from a, a human rights angle or are you coming at it from a competition integrity angle? Well, we come at it, it's, it's more than that, Jim. It's about authoritarianism and it's about bringing football back under the control of the rule of law. We've done a lot of work on human rights and authoritarianism. We, did, we never wanted to work on football, but the more we were working on the Gulf, the more that we saw the Gulf states were becoming involved in football, trying to control football, and we're using that for political ends. And that was making our job incredibly difficult. So it became apparent that we couldn't just focus on, you know, human rights, we do that too, but we had to look more deeply at what, you know, authoritarianism generally, and 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 the way that the game, which is a very powerful political tool, it's incredibly powerful, has great resonance all around the world. The way this is being manipulated by actors for their own ends um, is very dangerous. By actors? By, by states, by by governments, sorry. Um, but Nick, has a horse not bolted on this one? The Saudis are in at Newcastle. The Saudis are in at Newcastle. We opposed that. The Premier League should have opposed that. They said they would accept that bid based on, what was it, what was it, what was it? They said assurances from the Saudis. That's been shown to be nonsense. So they had the power. They, they let it go. Um, UEFA has the power. But, but, um, but with our, respect, Nick, there yeah. isn't any um, framework which stops state ownership of a football club. The reasons why they went down the narrative of getting a, some, a letter of assurance, which you and I both know is ridiculous, is because it would deal with the argument that people like you would bring up and amnesty and so on and so forth, and not really because there was a necessity in the framework of football to stop state ownership owning football clubs. I believe that there should be, but under the current auspice and some regulations, there isn't. What, what you appear to be doing... And I don't disagree with the fact that you should be watching this carefully and watchdogs and pressure groups should be monitoring what goes on in influential scenarios like sport. But really your main objective is to try to utilise the conflict rules to, to sort of, not so much camouflage because that would do you down a little bit, but your main objective is about the regimes and their human rights issues. Not really, not really the integrity of sport. And you're not necessarily right in what you're saying, because although this is a ridiculous scenario, if the Qataris were owning PSG under the same auspices of owning Man United, they could elect to do that, but one of those clubs would have to step down out of competition um, insofar as playing in a particular tournament that the other club's playing in. So they can find a way around it in the same way that RB have found a way around and convinced UEFA that the ownership controls inside Salzburg and Leipzig are two different ownership controls. So I do think that you're sort of camouflaging your main agenda. Your main agenda is you don't like these regimes, you don't like their cultures, you don't like the, what they're utilising sports for, and really isn't about the integrity of is the sport. That, is that true, Nick? No, not exactly. I see where you're coming from, Simon, but that is that is not the case. Okay. The problem is when we talk about sports washing, right, what, are, what are we concerned about? We're concerned about the sport being used as a political tool and we're concerned about the impact of that on the things that we work on. Now, this would set a precedent whereby Qatar could buy two clubs, Saudi could buy two clubs, the UAE could buy two clubs. Why stop at two? Why not go for three? So what, what, what is the power that these, these states would have? And you're absolutely right. We have deep concerns about how they treat people and the abuses that they perpetrate. 
But what the power that they would wield if they take control of these clubs would be significant, and that would have a massive impact on our work. And yes, it is about the integrity of the game too, because you can care about human rights and you can care about football at the same time, and you can care about the game being taken over by authoritarian states the same way you can care about countries being taken over by authoritarian states. So the two things are linked. I get where you're coming from. I see why you think it's a little bit of a, uh, a fudge, but that's actually it's not the case. But it's your wife's gift. That's your wife's responsibility. That's their job to maintain the sporting integrity. And given they've been so robust in their views about the European Super League and things of that nature and the competitivity and the closed user group that that was brought into, I think they're pretty much the guys that will focus on that. I'm just going to say to you, Nick, Simon and I and Stuart here in studio not long back from Qatar. And we're focusing our attention on Qatar at the moment. And of course, there was a World Cup there and a pretty darn successful one at that. And the pushback we got out there was, why shouldn't it be here? Why shouldn't it be here? Now, Simon and I, in the, in the interest of balance, it's worth listening to this at this stage. Simon and I got in front of the, the Supreme Leader of the World Cup Committee, no less, Hassan Al-Thawadi. And we said to him, Nick, you know, what about the World Cup being here? And also, why do they see sport and football as a jewel in their crown. Why is Europe so obsessed by sport? Why is it okay to hold golf tournaments in Europe and in the States? Why is it okay to have boxing matches in Europe and in the States and in Japan, for example? Uh, you know, and, and, and people question what the importance of, the sport, of sports is in the Middle East. If you walk down the streets, you'll find avid fans of every kind of sport you can imagine and some you haven't heard of. So for me, the question honestly is a bit, it, it, it's a little bit strange because we have to sit down, you know, I feel like the, our part of the world has to justify our interest when, you know, since the start of the Premier League, you've had interests coming in from Russian uh, investors, you've had interests coming in from uh, American private equity firms, American investors, um, you've had interests coming in from Chinese, from, 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 from Thai, um, yeah, and, you know, from all parts of the world. What I'm saying is, one, why not the Middle East? That's one aspect. And two, People don't know the passion that we have for the world, for, 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 for sports. And like I said, sports are its entire front. So, so Nate, as co-director of Fair Square, you listened to Al Thawadi there, who was speaking to me and Simon uh, out in Doha. Um, if you've got such reservations and um, concerns over the potential Qatari ownership of Manchester United, do you have similar concerns about potential American ownership over Manchester United? Because the Americans are in. We would have similar concerns about American state ownership of Manchester United. Yes, Jim. The point is that no other state would buy a football club because no other taxpayers would allow the government to go and blow money on a football club when they should be spending money differently. There are huge problems with the way football is is, is financed, right? But we don't touch that. We touch on the, the issue of, of states involved in football. We stick to that and we're arguing that that needs to be rolled back. I mean, I've, I've, I've sat with Hassan too, you know, and he's, he's very slick and he's very smooth. Nobody ever said that Qatar shouldn't have the World Cup. All we said was, if they're going to have the World Cup, they should treat people properly in the construction of it. And they didn't do that. But a lot of people, a lot of people, you might not have said it, but a lot of people did say it. And when you look at the journey, and I'm not going to be an apologist for anybody, when you look on the journey of that country, which 51 years ago was a British protectorate, to where it is now, and the changes that needed to have been made and the evolution and the changes that have been made from the Kavala mentality that was there seven or eight years ago to the changes around migrant workers, not perfect, but a long way from where they were. So surely that's the job. That's the task in hand. 
to be able to get these societies to evolve, to get them to move through in a country that's being built up from the desert upwards. I'm not suggesting that people that went over there and have had their lives lost through heat conditions and people that have built kavalas that are ultimately profited off the back of migrant workers shouldn't be held to account. But we also have to recognise that there is a vast difference between what it was and what it is now. Is that fair, Nick? Not according to Human Rights Watch, not according to Amnesty, not according to the people on the ground who go and research conditions, not according to the workers I speak to on the phone who say that they haven't been paid for eight months, who say they're out doing delivery riders for tips because they haven't been paid and they're starving. Um, there is certainly a narrative that sport can push things forward. I, I, I appreciate that, Simon. I'm not saying that there hasn't But also, everything's skewed in one way. Amnesty International, with all due respect, uh, if, you, if they eradicate the world of every single ailment, they have no reason for existing anymore. So half of the currency <laughs> they have is to continue to point their finger at everything. I looked, at the, I looked deep beneath the figures and looked at the, at the rate of migrant, migrant workers dying in... And it's a tragedy to talk in these terms. We've got used to talk about death with COVID and so on and so forth as if it was a statistic. But I looked at the migrant workers in um, Qatar and the mortality rate of the same creed of people coming from India and places of that nature. And the mortality rate was higher from the same demographic of person in India than it was in Qatar. And those figures don't seem to find the light of day because the constant dynamic is awful country, awful environment, dreadful laws, Sharia belief system that basically prejudices everyone's human rights. And that's the narrative that gets plugged out. And I don't think that's entirely equitable. I think it's entirely right to shine a light on it, but it has to be surely just a tad of balance if things are evolving. But, but I think there is balance. The balance, the balance is that certain things have changed, uh, but, but you have to be factual about it. You have to say, well, how, how effective has it been? You know, on, on the point of, you know, comparing figures of deaths, I mean, you're not an epidemiologist, Simon, right? Uh, neither am I, uh, but, but I've spoken but to a lot What's that got to do with the price of cheese? Because... If you've got a demographic spread of people coming from a particular country in the same age group and the mortality rate in one country but... that they originate from is higher than the mortality rate of a country that's been alleged that has no respect of migrant workers' rights, then they have to be compared in that situation. It's got nothing to do with being an epidemiologist or a virologist or somebody that deals with heart issues and assesses cardiac arrest in one country or another. Well, it, it kind of is because because you need what's called the denominator, which is you need to know how many workers are in the country at any one time to be able to do a death rate, and that's how epidemiologists compare death rates. Just to get back onto this, and I want you to have the final word in this. We're a bit behind time, but I'm going to stretch it a bit. So Fair Square, your organisation, as I said in the introduction, has written to Seferin, who's not having the best of times at the moment, it's fair to say, after the debacle at the European Cup final in Paris between Liverpool and uh, Real Madrid. That's another matter, Nick. But uh, you're asking him to block any Qatar-led takeover of United. So say, say all the indications are, in the process that we're about to see unfold, that the Qataris are looking good to get their hands on the club what will you then do? Well, we'll do what we always do, which is we'll we'll, we'll protest against it. We'll look for influential people to, to protest against it. You'll look for regulators to, you know, Simon made a good point earlier on about there's no there's no framework for, for getting states out of the clubs, uh, for getting countries out of football clubs. That needs to change, you know, and we need to have politicians and influential people in the game standing up for that and saying, you know, we, we want the game back. It's not perfect as it is. Um, but it's heading down a it's heading down a dangerous path. I think would be the key. key very point. difficult to get politicians involved, isn't it, Nick? When we're selling up weapons to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> very yes, very it is indeed. Your one hundred percent essential download, outspoken with White and Jordan. Thanks for listening to Outspoken. Don't forget to leave a five star review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. 
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.